Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We are glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. Before I read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4, just remember we have been kind of going through this letter of Peter's written to the church uh, over the last few weeks. And he's writing to a church that has been kind of lamenting where things are at right now and worried about how things are going. So they live in a world in which Rome is in control and Rome would be okay with Christians if only they would recognize that their God can join all the other gods that they worship and if you know if they can just kind of let their religion fit into their kind of national uh, faith-based system that this everything would just be okay. And Peter's writing in the midst of that. And there's people in the church who are, of course, uh, lamenting what's lost. There is more and more people moving against Christians. In the early church, moving against kind of their faith and who they are and facing more and more adversity and persecution. And they're remembering a day and longing for the days long gone when... Uh, they were able to worship a little bit more freely when in, their, uh, in the country that they had lived, that they, their faith was the predominant one. And First Peter, or, or, uh, this letter is written by the apostle to kind of address all that is happening in their life and in their faith. And I think some of us, hearing just that kind of background, can say, yeah, I know. I know a little bit about that. I know people who lament just remembering when it seemed like Christianity was a little bit more in the fore than it is today. When people are wondering, how, how do I exercise my faith now when there's so many other faiths that people are accustomed to and people are just saying, hey, it's just one more among many. Peter is writing to the church. He's writing for us. He says in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 19, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, so as to live for the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation. And so they blaspheme. But they will have to give an account to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead. So though they've been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious. Discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be glorified in all things through Christ Jesus. To Him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. 
beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when His glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory, which is the Spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear His name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Peter begins this chapter telling the church, arm yourself because Christ has suffered in the flesh. And that is a weird way of putting things for Peter. Arm yourself, he says. And now he does say to arm yourself with the intention of Christ. But Peter, the author, we might remember his story. You see, in the Gospels, uh, it's told Jesus was telling his disciples about a dangerous path that lay ahead for them as his disciples. And in warning them about that dangerous path, he said, uh, you're going to need some swords to take with you on your journey. And the disciples say, oh, we got two of them here. He said, that's enough, that's enough. Now, that's kind of funny on the one hand is like, I think if there's at least 12 of you, I don't know how two swords is enough if there's significant danger. I think really what Jesus is saying, you misunderstood. It was just an illustration for a point. I had a guy who told me he loves to do lots of hiking and there's this area of the woods in, um, in northern Maine where there's like no cell reception. It takes multiple days to hike through. And there's some points where you can camp, but he says, when I do that camping trip, when I do that hiking trip, I do have a handgun with me because the only thing out there is me and the wolves <laughs> and the bears. And like, uh, that is, like that's his illustration. It's a dangerous journey. And that's what Jesus was in, was an illustration of a dangerous journey. But then the Gospels tell us, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying and he's pouring out his heart to God, and the disciples, in this, late at night, praying with Jesus, are falling asleep. It's unbelievable. Everyone knows good disciples don't fall asleep in prayer. We would never do that. And so, and so uh, the disciples, while falling asleep, Jesus notices that uh, uh, his accuser, Judas, is here and with, and with the high priest and with those who are going to arrest him. And he says, wake up, they're here. And Peter grabs one of those two swords and goes and strikes the ear of the high priest's servant. The guy, Gospel of John tells us, is named Malchus. And Jesus responds, wait, hold on. I'm not raising an army, and he undoes the violence that Peter does when he heals the ear. And so Peter, who had literally armed himself with the weapons of that day in order to hold off whoever might hurt Jesus, Jesus says, no, you've missed this. And so Peter says to the church, arm yourself, but he's learned now. Arm yourself with the intention of Jesus. We're not arming ourselves with the ways of this world, but with the intention of Jesus. Jesus, one who fought, if I can use that term, it's kind of ironic, one who fought with 
love and grace and forgiveness. One who completely surrendered to the will of God. And such complete surrender to the will of God is how precisely we receive victory over sin in the ways of this world. And so he tells the church, as difficult as it is right now, as much as we long for a different time, where we are right now, it is dangerous and we're going to arm ourselves. But we're going to arm ourselves with the intentions of Christ, with who He is and how He lived in the face of a world bent against Him. And so he says, you're going to turn, as you've turned away from the, the old life, there is a new way that we are called to live. And the challenge when, we, when Christ has entered into our life and has changed us is indeed wondering, what do I do with the old way of life? What do I do with, with how I used to live and how I used to act with, with some of the people I used to hang out with? What happens there? And the challenge, of course, is always, what do we do when life has changed? And of course, it's not to totally escape the people God had in our life, but to recognize and to be able to say to them, I, I think... I think God's doing something new, and I still respect and enjoy and love who you are, but my life is starting to change. And so Peter says to them, we're not going back to the old way of life, to the way that the Gentiles live, and he lists those sins, and he lists those behaviors which are contrary to the way of God. And he says to the church, I want you to know the end of all things is near. Literally is at hand. I, I personally like at hand better. Uh, yeah, yeah, it means it's near, so it's fine. But when I think something's at hand, it's palpable, it's touchable. It's able to be wielded, exercised, it's being given, it's being received. When he says the end of all things is at hand, there, there's a real sense in which we are living out and exercising as if Christ's return is imminent and as if God is making a change and a difference in our world today. When he says the end of all things is near, I don't think he means the way I grew up hearing it at first. And I can't blame the people who taught me this way too much. They, they grew up in, in the fear of a nuclear holocaust. I used to have pastors and evangelists tell me they remembered huddling under desks doing bomb drills because they were afraid of nuclear fallout. Now, I remember hiding under a desk, but it was for a different reason. I grew up in North Dakota, where the cold air of the Rockies meets the hot air coming from the southern uh, uh, grassy plains, and it would meet and it would swirl around and we'd have tornado drills all the time. They were afraid of a nuclear holocaust, the generation before me who was teaching me, but I was afraid of an act of God destroying the world around me. And so here we were, all of us just you know, huddling and, and being afraid of what's going to happen. The end of all things is near. But as I think about this context for the church, I think when he says the end of all things is near, he's not saying when the whole world is blown up or destroyed or wiped out. I think he has something else in mind for a church. He's saying, hey, we're being persecuted. And we're getting our property taken away from me, and, we're getting, and our faith is causing us to be separated from our families, and we're just worried about where is this world going? This can't continue on, can it? When Peter says the end of all things is near, I think he's talking about the way that sin seems to be controlling this world. When I was a youth pastor, I had a, had a guy in my youth group who uh, one time came to me, and he was absolutely depressed. He was absolutely anxious. And he was like, 
I don't know how much longer I can go on. And it was a tough situation. He didn't, he didn't like the, the lack of control he felt he had in his life. He felt his parents were too overbearing, classic for most teenagers. But also, he felt no kind of freedom out of school or, or just felt like, hey, I just feel like I, there's no escaping. And even the greater context at that time was, in his school of the last few years, there had been a handful of deaths. And so there had been a car accident and someone had died and then there was great mourning and depression and anxiety surrounding that. And someone out of that, uh, that loss then killed themselves and just poof, deflated the whole community. And that whole high school was just more and more sorrow and despair and it led to another who thought they should end their life. And it was just this, this, this kind of general just like, there is no future for me. And I remember this student coming to me and talking with me about this. Now, of course, I was able to explain to him, yeah, well, God is with us in these moments and try to give him hope in that. But I had to, had to say something else too. I had to tell him, the end is near. There's going to come a time when you're going to graduate and you know what, you're going to start making decisions that aren't fully de determined by your teachers or your parents. You're going to start making decisions about whether you're going to work or whether you're going to go to school or where you're going to live or whether you're going to get married. And I said, and in just a brief moment, you're going to see that all that right now seems to be closing in on you and suffocating you is not going to be there anymore. There is a different future just on the horizon. And I think this is what Peter is saying to the church. When he says the end of all things is, is near. He's saying the end of what's wrong with the world. The, the end is near doesn't have to mean the world's going to blow up. And it does, and it doesn't mean, but it does mean the world as we know it. With all its prejudices, with all its persecution, with all its evil, it's on the way out. And this is good news for a church. And this is good news for someone who says, you know, enough's enough. And so he says to this church, given that the end of all things is near and that the way of the world is near, there's a new pattern of behaviors for us. There's a new way in which we are called to live. We're called to live out the faith and the hope that we have. And so he says, we're going to love one another. We're going to be constant in our prayers. We're going to be hospitable to one another. When I was in, uh, when I was in high school, we didn't have phones with which we texted all of our pithy sayings. Right now, you got, you got a clever saying, you put a, you put a nice background behind it, and boom, you share it with the world, a meme now, or whatever. You know, you're just sharing it with everyone. No, in the 90s, we put it on our t-shirts. <laughs> I mean, the 90s were weird, and it's just what we did. And I remember one of those was, uh, nice guys finish last. It was, it was one of those sayings I saw on shirts all the time when I was, I was nice guys finish, finish last. It's a saying that says, hey, the world's dog-eat-dog dog, dog world out there, and you know what? If you don't get in line, you're going to be left behind. It's, that, it's that, that idea of if you don't act like everyone else, you're going to be left in the dust. And Peter says to a church that is thinking, saying, yeah, there's a way the world works. And if we don't get up to speed, we're going to be in trouble. But Peter says, God has said that is coming to an end. There is a God who has a plan and a purpose for you now and a plan and a purpose for you tomorrow. And that changes how we live so that we don't have to say, I guess it's nice guys finish last. We can say we are living towards the love of God that we know is being poured out on a broken world. And this is what he calls the church to in the face of saying, 
what's wrong with this world? I feel like I need to play along or else I'm going to be left behind. He begins to talk to the church and warn the church that in this moment that God is seeing this and this, this can be a moment of, of truth, a moment of accountability, a moment of, of judgment is the word he uses. But judgment of God is, is meant to be seen as a judgment of grace. We already see that God is looking to offer strength to those who have constant love for one another. We, we, we have seen in Scripture before how God, and even in First Peter earlier, how God wants to continue to walk with Christians throughout their valleys, through their hard times. God is always looking to extend grace in our direction. And there is warning for those who Peter calls in this passage the ungodly and the sinner, for those who are still living the way the Gentiles do. And I want to talk a little bit about that warning. These... I really think are descriptors for those who are abusing the Christians that he's writing to. The church. Christ has suffered in the flesh, he said, and you might suffer too. You will at least suffer the abuses of those who say, well, why aren't you going back to the life you used to live? But even more so, suffer hardship and persecution. In other words, when Peter starts pointing out those who are living a certain way, And he mentions things like criminality. He mentions things like thieving and murdering and making mischief. These aren't meant to be a list of who doesn't make it to heaven. You know, who doesn't get it. I I think that those are illustrations of the very people who are persecuting the church. Of who we get, uh, of who he is warning is acting against the ways of God to bring them down and to destroy them. Of course, these are behaviors that should not and must not define a Christian, that he doesn't want the church to be engaged in because Christians are defined by grace, by the life of Jesus, by loving one another, as he said, by our forgiveness and deliverance from sin. But these are also the marks of the kinds of people who are currently persecuting the church. And when he mentions these very simple sinful acts and calls them ungodly and calls them the acts of the sinner, he has in mind those who are persecuting the church. And he's using examples of their behaviors to call them out and to let the church know that way doesn't last. These behaviors define who they are and they're murdering and they're thieving, which is happening when they're taking properties of Christians, when they're murdering those who testify according to Christ. Peter has in mind those who are acting with power over against those who don't have any. Now something happened in the long historical life of the church. Somewhere along the way, we forgot where we came from. The church slowly gained more influence in the political sphere, among the policymakers, in the ears of the Roman Senate and their appointed leader. And as the church cozied up to them, they found themselves in a more and more advantageous position. And with that advantage, they gained influence and power and persuasion. What happened is, they fell into the same trap that the nation of Israel did before the exile, that the prophets spoke about. They became so accustomed to the power the church held in relationship to whoever was king that uh, they were more about prolonging the status quo 
and their own power and their own relationships than they were to taking care of the people God called them to take care of. And so the prophets would warn them again and again. We have been called to take care of the alien, to take care of the widow. We actually heard that line in the psalm this morning. To take care of the poor among you. Don't forget where you came from because you were there as well. And so the early church forgot where they came from. They became the power brokers, not only of politics and land and money, but also the gatekeepers of heaven itself. And so passages like 1 Peter chapter 4 have for a very long time become known as passages that describes who gets into heaven and who goes to hell. After all, it does seem at first glance, 1 Peter 4 is talking about who doesn't get in. Thieves, murderers, mischief makers. But in the very story of the crucifixion of Christ, we have the story of Jesus who hangs between two thieves. Or as more modern translators are saying, rebel insurrectionists, a.k.a. mischief makers. (laughs) We find there is room for one of them in heaven when Christ says, this day you will be with me in paradise. 1 Peter chapter 4 is warning the church about exercising its faith with the same powers used by this world. The same old preachers who used to, uh, uh, I think, were very accustomed to saying, hey, uh, you know, the end of the world is just, it's utter destruction. Also warned me about this kind of behaviors in the life of the church. They called it circling the wagons. They borrowed the Old West kind of phrase, circling the wagons, which is when things get a little shaky and we don't know what happens in church, we create our in-group and we say, you're in, everyone inside that circle is in the church, everyone outside's in trouble. They're the danger, they're the bad guy. And it still happens today whenever the church says, we want to preserve what we think is important about our doctrine or our practices rather than the love God has called us to share. When the church aligns itself with political powers and then justify the exercise of unholy practices just because it gets the results we want. And Peter reminds the church the goal of their faith is not to get out of their hardship. Yeah, he does say the end is near. And there's a hope and there's a future that indeed we hope to get through this. But the goal is to be faithful through the hardship because within the suffering we find the comfort of Christ who suffered on our behalf. Our goal is not to inflict or project hell on others in order to preserve the power and influence we desire as ended up happening in the early church, ended up happening in understanding of, of, of ancient Israel, of, of, of who's right and who's not. Our goals must always be to share love and be stewards of God's grace. And so this passage is a passage written to a church that's going, it seems like things are falling apart and I don't know what to happen. And it seems like uh, it, it is so hard to be a Christian today. And Peter says, yes, but in this hardship, you are living out the faith of Jesus Christ. Continue in the commitment to love one another, to be hospitable, and to share the very grace of God. Because that which is wrong in this world does reach its final end when God judges it as not belonging in his created world at all. And all of a sudden we find indeed judgment is grace for God's people, for it is deliverance and liberation from all that is wrong in this world. Today, this morning, 
My hope in reading this is we might find ourselves going, okay, Peter, what are you saying for me today? Where do I need to extend grace where perhaps I have been tempted from times before to exert power and say, oh, you're in trouble. I know where you're going. Or maybe, as Christ did, we're supposed to say, would you like to be in paradise with me someday? And it's perhaps a moment where we recognize, okay, God has changed me and God's done something wonderful in my life. And so like Peter said, I don't go back to the old way of life. Not unless going back means welcoming those whom I know and I love to experience the saving grace that God has extended to me. This is indeed a promise in a future in which he says God's plan of salvation is extended for you and he is with you now until the very end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and this time to remember that you are the God who is with us today. This is a Sunday in the life of the church where we might remember your very ascension, where your Son, Jesus Christ, has, is now dwelling in the heavenly sphere with, with, with the Father. And Lord, that is not an escape. That is not a... That is not a rejection of this world, but it is indeed an affirmation that the way of Christ is the way to you. And so I pray and I ask that you would conform us to the will and love of Christ. Help us, Heavenly Father. Help us where we are weak. Help us where we are desiring your strength and your presence. Help us where we have said, oh, I keep going back. Help us where we have said, oh, I've looked down far too easily at those around me. And Lord, forgive us and help us where we have said, "Eh, I'll just go with the way of the world for a while. It'll help me along. Heavenly Father, help us find And your Son, Jesus Christ, the one crucified for us, that there is grace, there is hope, and there is love right now where we are in our faith and in the history of this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him today.